Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by General Motors. Today is Friday, April 30th. Household income is up, the White House is cracking down on menthol cigarettes, and we're focused on the global ship shortage. Most of us have never held a silicon chip in our hands, but we use all sorts of things that wouldn't work without them. Our smartphones, computers, cars, and even increasingly household appliances like refrigerators and washing machines. If the product is in any way, quote, smart, and it's not breathing, chances are it's using a chip. But there's a problem, and of course there is, because that's why we're doing a show about this. The world, overall, isn't producing enough chips to satisfy demand, creating a shortage that could impact product availability. And that's made even worse by a complicated supply chain that includes some very difficult-to-get raw materials and the fact that chip manufacturing plants take a very, very long time to set up. Some analysts actually believe this problem will persist through year-end, while Intel, which is the world's largest chip maker, expects it to continue beyond next year. We'll actually speak with a top Intel executive later in the show, but first wanted to ask Axios Chief Technology Correspondent Ina Freed for her thoughts on why we don't have enough chips and if we're already seeing an impact. Chips are made from silicon, like grains of sand. Shouldn't we be able to make these anywhere we make tech products? But actually, semiconductors are really precision instruments with tiny, tiny wiring, almost microscopic, thinner than a human hair. And so really, there's only a handful of places around the world that can make chips, especially at the leading edges, at the thinnest forms of wiring. So what happens is it's a really delicate balance of having supply and demand. And we're just out of balance. And you throw in some weather events in Texas, some drought in Taiwan, and all of a sudden, you've got a real problem. In terms of where these shortages are showing up, I mean, they're showing up across a lot of different products. We're hearing a lot from the car makers because whole car production lines are getting shut down because they can't get enough of the chips. But the shortage is showing up in other places too. Uh, when I talked to Qualcomm execs, it was really across their businesses that they were seeing shortages. Uh, so that's things like networking gear, like routers. It's things like smartphones. So this chip shortage, as it goes on, is really affecting a wide range of products. Thank you, Ina Freed, Axios's chief technology correspondent. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with Gregory Bryant, who leads Intel's PC business and who used to lead its Asia-Pacific operations, which is important to the story because lots and lots of chips are made in the Asia-Pacific region. But first, this. We're now joined by Gregory Bryant, a 29-year veteran of Intel, where he currently leads the PC division. So, Gregory, we use uh, chips for everything, our phones, all our smart devices, and our cars. What's the short explanation for why there's now a global shortage of chips? Oh, Dan, you hit, you hit spot on. You know, everything is becoming more digital, whether that's your car, schools, uh, your home office, appliances. Everything has been increasingly becoming more digital. And we saw that trend, which had started before covid as COVID happened, it just accelerated that trend and it, it resulted in a huge spike in demand. And the manufacturers around the world, the people who build chips in the supply chain all around the world needed for those devices saw this unprecedented spike in demand. And quite frankly, it takes a long time to build a chip factory. It can, you know, can take a couple of years from start to finish to build a factory and they just weren't able to keep up with the, this rise in demand, the sharp rise in demand. It's really unprecedented. You mentioned you, you were starting to see this before the pandemic. 
Yeah, I, before the pandemic, the trend towards the digitization of everything had started before the pandemic. A lot of these trends existed and they were moving in kind of a linear fashion. But with COVID, you really saw this disruption and a real spike in demand across you know, a variety of industries. And it's been very difficult for the supply chain and the chip supply chain and all the components and, and parts that go into making devices to keep up with that increase in demand. Gregory, you talked about how it can take a long time to get a chip manufacturing plant or a foundry up and running. Why does it seem so much harder to build one of these than a generic factory? Chips in general are some of the most complex devices built by humans on the planet, right? It's almost hard to, for the average person to fathom how small these transistors and devices are that go into these things that look like simple chips. They're actually incredibly complex. And the technology that's used to build them in these factories, we call them fabs, but in these factories, it takes an incredible amount of equipment. You need clean room space. They're not just a normal factory. A lot of these factories are incredibly clean, inc incredibly precise, cleaner than a hospital even, you know, in, in these factories to produce these chips. Gregor, you've been talking about rising demand. Let's talk on the supply side of this. Is it not just do we have the same number of chips, but more demand, but do we actually have fewer chips? No, that's right. I would say it this way. Ahead of COVID, some industries were actually forecasting a decline in demand, you know, automotive in particular. You saw them, their, their forward-looking forecast was actually declining. And then, you know, post-COVID, we saw this massive increase in demand, and that really resulted in this strain on the supply chain. So you're right. It was, there was a decrease in some output that had started before COVID in some areas, and then that was exacerbated by this tremendous uh, increase in demand. More to your point, it's not just the chip itself. It's, you know, it's the components that go into devices like appliances and computers. I'll give you an example. We, we sold more notebook PCs and, you know, chips for notebook PCs last quarter than in any quarter in the history of our company. Our demand was up 54% year on year. We had the chips, the PC chips to supply that demand, but they're, it's putting a huge strain on panel makers and battery makers and Wi-Fi chip makers, substrate providers, all these little components that go into to creating a PC, for example, are under a tremendous amount of strain. Should consumers then expect there to be product shortages? In some areas, there's definitely strain on demand. We've done a good job with our industry partners of being able to keep products on shelves for people to buy. But let me tell you, it's taken very close work with our partners in order to accelerate equipment and all these components to get these materials to market. And I think that persists. I mean, this is your question is, hey, will this persist? These constraints, will they persist? And, and I think for it, it could take a couple of years for us to get kind of the overall fundamental supply and demand picture realigned. There are things we can do in the near term to help, but I, I think at a macro level, this could persist for a little while. If it does persist, does that mean at some point when I want to go to the store, say, and get a laptop, it might be harder for me to find one? And if so, when does that start happening? I think so far we've been able to keep, you know, product on shelves. I think you'd see it manifest itself more in the number of choices, you know, so I think you, you would see a limitation in the number of choices potentially that are there and, you know, certain SKUs may not be available at the exact time you need them. So, I, but I, I don't, I don't expect there to be a stock out or, you know, like you walk into a store and there's, there's nothing, but, but I do think it is, it, it does, it does limit choices. And, you know, like I said, one of the great things about being at Intel and being a manufacturer, the kind of the global manufacturer, the size and the scale that we are is we're able to better work with our partners around the world in order to address some of these critical gaps. And, you know, think about, 
We can take extraordinary effort helping them with equipment, helping them fit up new space, helping them increase their output. That's been a big advantage for us in, in my business, getting you know PCs and notebook computers on shelves for students and people all around the world. Are there non-PC sectors, maybe automotive, where you expect there not to just be a shortage of choices, but really a shortage of supply? Like, I can get that car, but I can get that car in six months? I think right now the, there's definitely a crunch in the supply chain, and you see that manifest itself more in the amount of time it takes to get component materials, which can, can impact you know, the rate and pace of demand. It's, you know, it's a very complex supply chain. We're committed to do our part to help. We're leaning in with partners, not just in our industry, but in other industries, both in the short term to help. And then the long term, you know, Dan, because we're a big manufacturer, you've probably heard this. We've already committed this year to build two brand new factories in Arizona, in the United States to add real capacity. In the past, Intel, mostly we, we essentially built chips almost only for ourselves. Going forward, we're going to open up our fabs or our factories to build chips for other companies. That's new. We announced that last month in order to help address this problem in the long term so that it also doesn't happen again. Is there a way at all to recycle these materials or reuse the chips, which could help alleviate part of the crunch? In my industry, there is definitely a market for kind of reused computers uh, and reused boards, and that helps to some degree. But, you know, the, the total demand is just increasing at a rate where even that I think is insufficient. We've got to put new capacity in place in order to support this demand. I mean, look, the number of PCs per students in the world today, if you think 100 students in a world, there's seven devices for those students. That's kind of where we are in the world today. You know, PCs would be like toothbrushes. You know, they're essential, but nobody wants to share them, right? You like everybody wants their own device. It's we're not there today. There, it isn't one PC per person in a household today. So we've got to be able to, we've got to invest in this capacity to support the demand for now and the future. You mentioned those two new fabs that Intel is going to build in Arizona. Uh, conventional wisdom is one of the reasons that fabs are usually built in Asia is lower labor costs than you'd have in the U.S. So if you're building two fabs in Arizona, does that mean prices are going to increase for consumers? No, we've been incredibly competitive overall and at a system level with our partners in providing you know, my business PCs, but other devices, et cetera, to consumers with our, with our chips in them. But what I will say is, you know, we're working aggressively to expand our capacity in the United States. By the end of the year, we'll announce our next round of investments in, in additional capacity in the world. And then we're really trying to work with the U.S. administration and other governments and around the world to get a level playing field for chips, Dan. And this is your point is, you know, hey, we, we've seen estimates from the Semiconductor Industry Association that says, it can cost about 30% more to operate a fab or a factory in the United States than in some place in Asia like Taiwan. Is that not primarily because of labor costs? No, you know, 40 to 70% of that is because of government subsidies. A lot of our competitors that exist in other parts of the world are heavily subsidized by governments. And we need to work with the government of the United States and government around the world to level the playing field to make sure that we can be uh, competitive. But look, we announced these investments in Arizona with no assistance. You know, our $20 billion is going in. We've got our chips on the table. That's what we like to say. We put our chips all in. Uh, it's the right thing to do for the industry and for the world. And, and then we definitely would like to see support and help so that we can go even faster.
a lot of the raw materials for these chips come from China, come from Taiwan. Should there be U.S. national security concerns that if tensions between the two countries got really great, that China could basically shut off the faucet, kind of shut down U.S. tech manufacturing consumption? The way I would frame it is these are very complex supply chains with a lot of interdependencies. And your point is, yeah, we have talked to a lot of our partners and they're looking for a more balanced supply chain. They're looking for a more resilient supply chain. And I think that is a very important point for companies, for boards, regardless of the industry you're in, to be thinking through is, okay, where does this technology come from? You know, where are my dependencies and do I have resiliency um, built into the supply chain? And that was really actually, Dan, that was at the core of our decision to do Intel Foundry Services, to open our factories up to build ships for other companies and other customers and to provide more balance in the supply chain. We've got over 50 companies that are already interested in talking to us about us building chips for them, even some of our competitors. I think that's a direct result of what you just said. It's because they want a more balanced supply chain and they want a more resilient supply chain. Gregory Bryant of Intel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Dan. Welcome back. What we're watching is TikTok, which this morning announced a new CEO and without officially announcing it, kind of disclosed it's no longer worried about being forced to spin off its U.S. business. You probably remember some of the backstory. Uh, President Trump last year threatened to ban TikTok on national security grounds, which freaked everybody out, particularly TikTok users. In fact, his top trade advisor, Peter Navarro, came on this program to argue that the Chinese government could theoretically use TikTok to harvest private information on American users. TikTok's parent company, China's ByteDance, then worked out a very complicated deal whereby it would spin off its U.S. business into a standalone entity, along with some help from Oracle and Walmart. But ByteDance and the Trump administration never came to a final agreement, and the Biden administration doesn't seem to care much, all of which led to this morning's announcement that the new CEO of TikTok will be ByteDance's CFO, not really the sort of move you make if you're about to break the thing apart. The person who had been running TikTok U.S., Vanessa Pappas becomes the global COO, and everyone else just keeps lip syncing and dancing and causing social media house drama. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Naomi Shaven, Sabina Sangani, and Alex Sugiara. Please be sure to give us a rating, and if you don't already follow or subscribe, rectify that situation. Have a great national bubble tea day, and we'll be back Monday with another Axios Recap. Axios Recap.